Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I'm Janet Ellis and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to another episode of Twice Upon a Time and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Susie Dent, lexicographer, etymologist, I say carefully, and all-round superstar on Countdown and I had the privilege, I would, it really is a privilege, of sitting next to you for a whole episode, well five episodes recently and honestly watching you with words Susie is like watching the finest conductor with an orchestra, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Oh, thank you. What book have you gone back to today? I did think very hard about this, as I'm sure all your guests do, Janet. And um, I have chosen a book by Noel Stretfield. And then on that countdown day where we were able to chat in Dictionary Corner, you told me that she is by far and away the most frequently chosen author, which made me feel really bad. But I'm sure um, I didn't actually say, I'm going to jump in here. I think I said somebody <laughs> else had chosen her. And it's actually, I think what it is, is that when you say Noel Stretfield, even if it wasn't someone's absolute favourite book, they always go, oh, but I love and then they will name one. I think everyone yes. has a favourite Noel Stretfield book, but not yeah. everybody chooses this book or that book as their particular one-time favourite. So which one did you go for? Well, I think most people would say ballet shoes, but I didn't opt for that one. I did absolutely love ballet shoes, but the one that really chimed with me was Thursday's Child. Uh, and uh, I am a Thursday's Child, so perhaps that's, uh, that was the, the kind of first thing that appealed. Um, secondly, I remember and this, this is actually one of the very few occasions where this has happened. I read it after watching a serialisation of it on the BBC, which was so beautifully done. And I was so captivated by a particular, uh, what's well, part of the book really, where um, they become what's called leggers. I should say, shall I give a little bit of the of the plot as I From remember what you can remember, it. but don't worry, yes. you're not sitting an exam here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the story of Margaret, uh, who is basically left on some church steps and she's left in a basket uh, with three of everything of the best quality and um, and a note saying that every year some money will be entrusted to her guardian, whoever it turns out to be, um, to help with her schooling and her upkeep. And then the money at some point runs out and nobody quite knows why. And uh, the wonderful woman who I think is called Hannah, uh, who has looked after her, basically has no option uh, other than to give her up. So it's the kind of classic orphan story. And I don't you probably explored this in the podcast, but I don't quite understand why we as children are so drawn to the idea of being orphaned. It's a very strange thing because you think it would be an ultimate fear. And perhaps that is what we're doing. We're exploring the fear of a place that we never want to visit. But there is an episode in there, or as I say, a part of the book where 
they um, they they run away and they work for a while um, on on canals. So they are leggers essentially for a canal boat. And it was that particularly. I think I'd always at that point wanted to live on the water. It was a very romantic notion of mine, and and that actually persisted for a good decade. I wanted to live on a houseboat. You will remember this, Janet. Not not. All of your listeners will, because they won't be old enough. But do you remember Crossroads? Exactly. Yes, I do. The soap (laughs) Crossroads that I grew up with. And and somebody there lived on a houseboat as well. And I used to (laughs) pour over the catalogues, the whole season's catalogues for uh, for boats and just imagine that this was how I was going to live my life. Now, I can't actually think, I don't think I would survive because I'm so nesh. I'm so susceptible to the cold. But that's what I wanted to do. And um, I was just really drawn to this character and it was as I said I loved ballet shoes and I think that is probably the Noel Stratfield book that most people would choose um but this one just just grabbed me really and it just kind of got me so to speak but I I should just say and I mentioned this very briefly I haven't actually reread it because I'm not sure I can bear to go there and lose the enchantment I, I absolutely get what you mean. I don't remember reading this one as a child, actually, although I did read Ballet Shoes and White Boots and a lot of the others. Can you remember how you came by your copy? No, I can't even remember that, actually. But I do remember it's exactly the same edition that you and your team sent me for the podcast. And it's got a picture of that BBC dramatisation on the cover. It may well have been that I borrowed it from the library because every Saturday as we were growing up, my dad would take me to um, Egham Library and uh, and we would spend hours in there. And there was real romance. I, I also wanted to be a librarian and I was a librarian at school for a while. Um, but there was part of me that longed to be um, head of sport or something but it, I was always the chief librarian which probably fitted me perfectly um, but there is still magic in libraries and bookshops for me so it may well have been a library edition that I didn't keep but I do remember that picture very well. Um, just to fill in a bit Oh please do, yes. Margaret Thursday uh, named Margaret Thursday because she was found on a Thursday and you're absolutely right about the three things and the money that runs out when she's about ten and she's been living with these two sisters, Miss Selina and Miss Sylvia who are in the book quite robust Bustly old, but she is cared for by Hannah, who teaches her to cook, which she doesn't care for very much, and to sew, which comes in useful later on. But when the money runs out, nobody can care for her anymore. So she's put into an orphanage, which is quite the most revolting orphanage. It makes Oliver Twist look like, you know, four star on TripAdvisor. It's absolutely <laughs> horrific. And she meets there these this other family. Lavinia, Peter and Horatio, and they all become friends. Lavinia is then taken into service with Lady Corkbury. But the treatment at the orphanage is so bad, and it culminates actually in Peter, uh, the elder brother of the boys, borrowing a book from this lovely guy, Mr. Windle, who they go to visit but who can't care for them, but he has a library. And Peter borrows, in inverted commas, uh, a book, a copy of Bleak House, actually. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, the little girl, is so worried that this will result in the police being called that she encourages the, her and the two little boys, I mean, the Horatio is a horry, is quite a small kid, to run away. And that's when they, they find themselves because they, they are taken away from the orphanage by Jim, the stable boy, who then takes them to his parents, who are on the boats, but they are working the boats. Yes. And finally, there is Lady Corpory that Lavinia has gone into service with, who is approachable, even though uh, Noel Stretfield loves describing hierarchies, in particularly in big houses. She abs- Pages and pages are devoted to who even may go through a door before everybody else and what has to happen if they do. 
But um, Lady Corkbury is the one they get a note to and the end resolution, and we are allowed to do this because it's a book that so many people have read, is that Lavinia is recognised, she and her brothers are recognised as the grandchildren of, of a chap in Ireland, uh, Lady Corkbury's um, husband, uh, recognises one of the children and says, I'm absolutely sure that they're related. So they have a happy ending. Margaret actually does not have this resolution in the end. She's offered various solutions, but they are not what she wants because she keeps saying, I'm going to be famous. She's not quite sure how or why, but she definitely, definitely wants to move on in her life. I think because Nell Stretfield herself w- was an actress for a time. Yeah. And because she was one of the large family that grew up in a vicarage, she, I think she always had an idea that her path would have to be her own. She's always very stout about being an individual, taking responsibility. And I found when I was reading it that the character of Margaret is actually really resolute and impressive and confident, which which I'm sure when you read it as a child, you must have really identified with. Yeah, I think so. I, it's interesting what you say about resolution at the end, because I've never been one for happy endings. I've always loved a little bit of melancholy. I mean, in the sort of spirit of true romanticism, I think, um, just that sort of tinge of um, uncertainty and, and sadness. I've always been drawn to that. So perhaps that resonated with me um, as well. It, it was It's funny what you say about Nell Stretfield's own life, because um, although I couldn't bear to read the book again, just in case, and um, I have to say there's another, another book, which I will mention, where it's exactly the same. I absolutely adored it and still can't bring myself to, to come back to it. But I list, I did listen to Noel Stretfield's Desert Island Discs with Roy Plumley, and I kind of wish I hadn't. I mean, she does sound an incredible, incredible human being, but she also sounds a bit like Margaret Rutherford. <laughs> the kind of yes. actor, and very, uh, very strong-minded, very feisty, in quite a sort of um, almost dismissive way. So perhaps... That is kind of percolating through Margaret Thursday as well. But although I think she did say that, Nell Stretfield did say that she based the character of Margaret on a friend of hers called Margot, who worked in a hotel, didn't she, at 14? Yes, yes, she did. She based it on somebody that was abandoned who had a similar trajectory. And she said that, I don't know whether she says this to Roy Plumley, but the thing that really impressed her was that, that quality of singularity, which probably coming from a big family, she absolutely loved. And also I think probably a bit from working in the theatre, where you, although you are part of a company, at a certain point in each production, it's just it's you. It's all you, yeah. And I think she writes really well about that. And at the at the end of, of Thursday's Child, um, Margaret and her uh, little brothers, um, and Lavinia's little brothers, um, end up with a theatre troupe. I think it happens in every single book she wrote, where they end up falling in love with theatre. And yeah. she is absolutely wonderful the way she describes, you know, the the way that it feels when it works on stage and the way that everything goes quiet and you speak. And Peter, the, the older of, of the kids, is not an actor. He looks right. They want to put on a production of Little Lord Fauntleroy and they think that Peter is absolutely it. But in the end, he can't he can't act. He just can't act for toffee nuts. And Margaret, although she's not actually a, a chap, you know, steps forward and they turn her into Little Lord Fauntleroy and they even dye her hair. 
and turn her into Little Lord Fondry. And she is an amazing success, which sets the seal, obviously, for her future as an actress. Yeah. But I think I think that's what she does so well, isn't it? That that thing of the possibilities for escaping where you are, where you're born, what happens to you next, that although that bit is set and you have to deal with it, when you leave that, you are free to fly. And she, I think she gets that terribly right. Yeah, I think she does. And also not just in physical terms, but in your imagination as well. So it's that kind of idea of going to a different world, just, well, obviously through reading her books, but also just through your imagination. And I think that did also come out in the interview that I heard uh, with Noel Stratfield. And of course, she does talk about how, uh, as you say, lots of children and how every Christmas, without any explicit instruction, the children were expected to provide the Christmas entertainment. So they had to kind of go off and, you know, and I I love that idea because there was obviously real freedom. I mean, she, I think she also said she hated the vicarage, so not quite sure what that was about. But she kind of combined a sort of real jolly hockey sticks approach with a real, I think, sort of sensitivity as well to what children need and how they experience the world. And you're right, as a character, I think Margaret is much, perhaps much more complex than possibly some of her other characters and also, you know, other, other books that I was probably reading at the time. There's more of a through line with her I suppose because she clings on all the time to this sense of not just her possible future but a sense of her importance which some around her read as a kind of arrogance but actually saves her. No and that's what we I mean in some ways I don't know it's interesting because you've you've read it obviously much more recently than me but clearly today I think that's what our children also really need is that sort of sense of self-worth. Yes, let me just refresh your memory, Susie, with a, with a little bit of the book, because it's it's a passage that I think really sums up Margaret and her approach to life and everything. This is very early on. It's very early on when she's actually being readying to go to um, the orphanage. In fact, Margaret had been waiting for a chance to speak. Can I take my baby clothes with me? Whatever for? gasped Hannah. I don't quite see, the rector started to say, but Margaret interrupted him. I don't want to get to this St Luke's looking like a charity child. If I show my baby clothes, three of everything and of the very best quality, they'll know I'm somebody. The rector looked at Margaret's flashing eyes. He spoke firmly, for he wanted her to remember his words. If you behave like somebody, you will be treated like somebody. Never allow anyone to suggest that because you do not know where your parents are, or in any way, you're in any way inferior to others more fortunately placed. You needn't worry, said Margaret, I never will. But what I think is that it will help if everybody can see I'm someone who has a mother who cared for her baby and was properly dressed. How can people know that if they don't see the clothes? Oh, so and that, that hanging on to the three of everything, she took, doesn't that, that comes up a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Because it's like a sort of real underpinning for her of being, as you say, somebody. Um, and that's lovely, actually. I want to be somebody, I think. Um, yeah, that's given me goose pimples, goosebumps. <laughs> Does it bear scrutiny now, or are the sort of the class depictions and you know the way the way that kind of life is presented and spoken about? It's interesting that she is obsessed with money and looks. Yeah, and actually, okay. with with the books that I've read, you know, and and reread, those are themes all the way through that she constantly talks about how much things are, how much they need to get very precisely, which I'm imagining that when we read that as children made a lot of sense because probably as a child, it's the only time when you know exactly how much money you've got, you know, down to the last farthing. She constantly talks about 
looks. She's not terribly kind about people who are plain or a little overweight. You know, Mm. she's incredibly critical. She's very keen on the absolute need to have a good speaking voice. She says at one point, she spoke in the clear voice of the well-educated. So it it doesn't read as snobbery because I don't think she was looking down. I think she thinks she's looking really clearly, but obviously it's through a slightly different prism. Yeah. But the fact that she's so precise about so many of those details is probably why you remember it so clearly, because everything everybody wears is outlined. And when she's actually, when she's going off to the orphanage, you know, Hannah is getting ready um, and she outlines this really precise list of exactly what she'll be taking. You know, and again, it's three of everything, three petticoats, three undershirts, and then, you know, one thing for Sunday best. And And there's an argument about undergarments. Am I right? Isn't there something where she took three... Three lots of underwear, and then that was forbidden at the orphanage because is that yes, right? Yeah, they're confiscated. Okay. They're confiscated. You're that. totally yeah. right. Well done. Yeah. yeah. No, they. They, I they are. No idea why I remember that. <laughs> well, I don't, well, actually, that's that's sort of the genius of it, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. that when when you read it as an adult, to be honest, a lot of the time you're thinking, um, can we get back to the actual story? But as a child, I think you have so much more time for that. You have so much more joy in minutiae. And, yes. and it's a way of controlling your world, isn't it? It's a That's, way of making yeah. sense of exactly what's around you because you have so little agency, really. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. So I suppose the, the dichotomy is that you are, you're balancing that with the fact that the children suddenly get an enormous amount of freedom because they actually run away. that have been you would you have run away as a child oh I always had dreams of the spotted handkerchief at the end of a of a stick and uh, whenever we had fancy dress parties I would want to dress up as a uh, well what we would call a tramp in those days so I would dress up in sort of holy clothes and a battered hat and I did I, I think I did have this notion that it would be lovely to just sort of take off but I think there's also something about this book and I, I mentioned the other book that I can't bring myself to read again and I was reading Julian Barnes write about doing just that actually and how glad he was to have revisited it and it's a book called in English it's called The Lost Domain by a young man called Alain Fournier who um, in French it's called Le Grand Moon and his name is Moon M-E-A-U-L-N-E-S and it is a beautiful exploration really of the twilight world between childhood and adolescence and that kind of freedom and the magic of it as well as the hardship and I wonder if that's also what's there in Thursday Child as well that it's it's that kind of fine balance between things being utterly enchanting and then just so wretched you can't believe and how there's always the possibility of the other you know and and as I say a really fine tipping point so I don't know if there's a if there's a link between the two of them but I think I must return to these books because how can I recommend them to my own kids if I don't actually reread them myself and where did you go to read what was your favorite spot in the house my house, the house I grew up in was always freezing and um, and I am always cold. I mean, you remember in the countdown studio, I have a hot water bottle with me at all times. So the only place that I could really get comfortable, and I remember striking this really weird position where I was kind of like 
almost crouched over, so kneeling, and then I had my elbows on on the floor. And it was near this, basically the only sunny patch that I could find, which was in the dining room. There was a slight invisibility to it as well because I was beneath the level of the table. And I, yeah, would just read there for hours and hours and hours. We also had a lovely tree that I would sometimes climb up into in the summer and read there. So it all sounds very romantic. But uh, yeah, that was my favourite spot. The only place I could get warm. Visualising you doubled over a book. That's such an yeah. intense way to read. Actually, one of my grandsons does that. Oh, really? It looks it looks like a contortionist and a book <laughs> is involved know. somewhere, but but I'm assured he's reading. And who else was in the house? Have you got brothers and sisters? Yes, I have an older sister um, who uh, was much more kind of still is actually much more outgoing and always glamorous, always beautiful. People could never believe that that she was my sister and they probably still feel the same because I was always the kind of geeky, nerdy one. And uh, it wasn't fashionable in those days, unlike today, to be a geek and a nerd and a SWAT, all three. Um, so uh, she was around and um, as I say, she would be kind of, you know, playing with her new eyelash curlers and uh, she did read as well but we never I don't think we ever read together it was quite a solitary experience for me but that was probably what I needed for you know complete immersion yeah and I grew up with my mum and dad it was it was lovely but I was quite a solitary soul I used to go out on conquer hunts and and also go to the local um we had like a Ford which was a cycle ride away and I would go and sit on the bridge and look and stare at the water so I think that's always been me there's a sense there when, you, when you're describing your childhood of, of somebody waiting for the next bit. That is so insightful of you because I, uh, if, if I was, which I never will, but if I was to ever write an autobiography, waiting would somehow be in the title because that's so much how I see my life somehow is just always slightly in suspense and waiting for the next thing and it's not always a great suspense either it's sometimes it's quite an anxious one you know just I also have this very clear image of waiting uh, looking out waiting by the front window and waiting for one of my parents whichever it was to come home um, so that is very much being the kind of leitmotif of my life I'm not quite sure why but yeah definitely in waiting for things that I guess might never happen I'm trying to link that then, and I can't actually, with with the fascination for words and language. I think and, it's just and, living in my head. I live yes. in my head all the time um, and always have done. And I know we, we all do to some extent, but just, um, yes, that is, I've just got this constant, constant dialogue going on with myself, I suppose, in my head and, you know, the next thought and then just sort of jotting something down. So it's very busy, uh, busy head. And so maybe I don't know if I was kind of playing out particular scenarios in my head and some of them were quite dark, you know, some of them were, well, what if she never comes back? Or So I think there's that dark side that I've always been slightly attracted to, or at least the melancholy, as I say. I, I can, Yeah, me too. I completely get that. It's sort of, it's a balance, isn't it, between catastrophizing, which is not particularly helpful, and yet no. la- allowing your imagination to spiral into something that is possible but terrible because then the resolution of it while it's not necessarily a happy ending gives you some comfort gives you something you do come back they might be in a terrible mood but they're home yeah one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're brilliant at languages. So you've, you've always escaped into other ways of expressing yourself, I suppose. Was that because... Was it because you can't possibly say, but, what, you know, is, is it linked, do you think, to the fact that the, the, the physical realm, you know, the sporty side of things, which other people express themselves brilliantly through, uh, certainly was denied to me as well. You know, I was hopeless at games and actually um, <clears throat> was not particularly encouraged to be good at them. But to me, the, the way of words and putting them together and assembling them and telling stories and listening to stories made so much sense to me. It was a way of absolutely explaining the world. And was this in in the form of narrative? So this was through reading for you. Yeah, I, definitely. I think what what was sort of slightly strange, I suppose, is that I also sought that kind of uh, refuge and jo- enjoyment, really, in individual words. So I would be constantly reading in the back of the car. So if we were going on a on a family trip somewhere, I would be in the back of the car reading French and German vocabulary books. And I didn't really have any particular t- test or there wasn't a sort of homework task that was set. I just lost myself in these words. And I still can't quite understand how those, you know, because they weren't making a collective story. They might have been bunched under particular themes like, you know, your bedroom or something. But I don't quite know why that was such a kind of welcome world for me. I mean, certainly when my, my parents divorced, it was a real refuge for me. So my, my work was a massive solace. But uh, so, yes, so, so it was reading combined with these kind of individual, you know, snapshots of a language that I just absolutely adored. And I'm not sure I'll ever quite understand why. I mean, I did like sports. Um, I still do. But again, quite solitary ones. So I will go off and cycle for miles and miles and miles or I go off and walk. Yeah, sometimes with a friend, sometimes on my own. So, yeah, I, I think I'm not painting a particularly attractive <laughs> picture of myself here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just so glad that I discovered that kind of mysticism for me, what seemed so mystical in language uh, so early on, because it just, you know, it just seemed to kind of just draw me along a certain path, even if I didn't realise I was treading it. How how old were you when your parents divorced? 13. Yeah, which is pretty, yeah. So yeah. I guess knowing that words already worked for you is a way of, but again, it goes with the sort of idea I have of you waiting. You're also, you are drawing things in, you know, you're not, you're not giving out loads. Yeah. You're not, you know, not, um, not an extrovert, I would imagine. And, no. and yet, if you wait long enough, there you are. You, know, you are. you haven't changed at all. You're not shape-shifting to fit in with a particular tribe or trying to be the popular girl at school. And yet, and yet, ultimately, you triumph because you are consistent. And that that's Margaret. That's amazing. I suppose that is Margaret, yeah, who's incredibly resilient. I think she's far more resilient than me. I couldn't do I couldn't have done any of the stuff that she did, I don't think. In my head, certainly. I don't don't think in real life. But yeah, there is that sort of sense of, as you say, kind of, oh, she's sort of 
triumphant, but also it's not all sewn up for her at all. So you do definitely get the sense that she's always going to have to strive and strive to get to where she wants. But, you know, in in some ways, I suppose that comes full circle because she was left on her own. and, And in the end, you know, she will be on her own trying to get there. Would little Susie have been astonished to see you on television every day or at the back of your mind was that always a possibility? No absolutely not a possibility so I I, I went from well basically I went to America because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after university here and realised I didn't want to be an academic uh, but that I did still love uh, books and I you know I, I think the sort of the hard-headed me would say well that's ridiculous anybody Everybody says they want to get into publishing because they love books. And in fact, it's very little to do with books and a lot more to do with, you know, the whole industry. Um, <laughs> <Numbers>. But <laughs> yes, numbers. Um, but having said that, um, I went to America, I came back, I started to work at Oxford University Press and purely because they have an arrangement with Countdown to provide a lexicographer to sit and be the, the word referee. My boss said, I think you should go for this. And I said no three three or four times at least um, because that just wasn't where I saw myself going. I'm not, uh, as I say, an extrovert. I mean, I'm not massively shy. It just really wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. I was living in Soho at the time. I was having a great time in London. I wanted to kind of, you know, just just carry on being as I was. And um, anyway, eventually he said it would be very good for my job. And so I went and, uh, but unfortunately the audition is still preserved. It's still fossilised on YouTube where I just look absolutely terrified. And, um, and you know, I'm so grateful that he did push me to do it. But no, TV was absolutely not on my radar whatsoever. And a personal thank you for your word of the day on Twitter, which is a oh. deep, deep joy. And um, yes. Thank you. Also, it's fun wonderfully revealing so enjoyable <laughs> do many of your guests avoid reading the books no actually full disclosure oh. you're the first person but oh, it wow. does it doesn't always um i mean i think it's it's a dichotomy isn't it first of all there's the way you loved it as a child yes. then inevitably there's the way you read as an adult in which in the background you're thinking social services surely or <laughs> exactly <laughs> at this point i would have closed that institution down but yes. i think the stronger dynamic by far is what you loved as a child, by far, by far, which outweighs any cynicism, any learned behaviour, any sort of irony about the way that adults and children behave to each other in the books because because there is a freedom on the page that you simply can't get in life and it's a way of, I guess, going back to that freedom of childhood too. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's true. I think if that, if that sort of core understanding is going to still be there. Maybe I, maybe I should just suggest. Yeah. I, I honestly, I tried, I tried to uh, read it to start reading it, but at least four times, and just thought, ah, I'm not sure I can go there because I thought I might have chosen a completely, yeah, uh, you know, it's, disappointing it's, it's, book. But it's a distinctive voice as well, and I think I've actually read it twice now because. To be perfectly honest, I read it the first time and I wasn't sure what the story was, which sounds okay. really silly because, oh. you know, it's a pretty clear narrative. But I wasn't sure why it was taking so many different turns and twists. And then mm. I remembered that if I'd read it at 13, that's exactly what I would have demanded. You know, I, do, I don't want Mrs. Dalloway. I don't want the life of a single day. I want 
lots of adventure, lots of different people involved, lots of lots of sparky characters that, you know, are have their moment on the page but don't necessarily interfere in the pattern of your life afterwards. And it, it was great reading it the yes. second time. It was great. That is true, actually. You've just reminded me because it's not all about Margaret at all, is it? No. It does really focus on, on the other characters a lot. So it's not like she is the sort of one absolutely driving things forward all the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and you and you sense that you're being tugged in different directions with that, you know. So obviously when she's in the orphanage and there's one appalling episode in the orphanage where she said something she shouldn't and, and the matron gets hold of the dirty rag that's been used for the floors and stuffs it in her mouth oh. to stop her speaking. I know, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, in the next description, there she is cleaning her teeth to get rid of the, of the taste and, and going back down and carrying on as before, which is so brilliant to read as a child. And as an adult, you think whatever Noel Stretfield knew about being a child, she had not forgotten. She no. had absolutely not forgotten. I think I think I am going to read it. I'm going to dive in, thanks to you, and um, and rediscover it. And oh, as, that, as you say, it. just maybe suspend, suspend kind of modern judgment. Yes, turn off everything. Don't have any noise in the house and, and go straight back to this, this world. Thank you, Susie. It's been an absolute joy rediscovering the book for you and discovering it for the first time for me. Can't thank you enough. Thank you, Janet. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TwiceUponAPod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. <laughs>